hundreds, maybe thousands of fires roiled and licked the sky in the hour before dawn. Just over the horizon, well before the sun, the clouds were red and hot. That would have been every refinery on the Delaware River, Bud thought, on fire. The same for a dimmer glow over Philadelphia. Baltimore came and went. He didn't look. The HH3E Jolly Green Giant was pushing 140 knots. The pilot was Bud Gallagher, a strategic air command officer and squadron commander of the 2857th Test Squadron, called, though very few people knew it, Outpost Mission. The co-pilot, we don't know his name, was almost blind with the welding glass shielding his eyes in case of another blast. It was protocol, but it probably wasn't necessary. The Soviet Union was already dead. But then, so were they. So it goes. Washington, D.C. was not on fire. It was a black hole on the horizon. The fires had been burned out or blown out by the bombs that had ruined the capital. Maybe there was just nothing left to burn now. There was smoke. The helicopter came in low. The pattern of the streets well defined in the rubble, like those pictures of Hiroshima. Because the sun was somewhere just over the edge of the Atlantic now, and that first horrible morning was coming. That's why he could see. That's why it was easy to find the White House. Bud Gallagher said, get ready. And that was all he said. Behind the welding glass, his co-pilot was crying. He couldn't be very useful. Behind them, and close to the right, was a second jolly green giant. They would secure the perimeter, in theory and in their many rehearsals, but no one really knew what they would secure it against, now that it had all happened. Outpost 1 landed on the South Lawn, but the debris from the White House itself, which had become tangled sticks, left no room for Outpost 2, which was forced a thousand feet south to the ellipse. Radio contact was broken, but there were voices there on the outpost frequencies. The president was alive. Bud Gallagher ignored the fact that his co-pilot was, at least for the moment, useless. Outpost 2 was already at the E Street fence, cutting in with acetylene torches. Much of the granite around them still stood, like bones, gutted and burned, but standing, a rarefied shelter against the fire. The president had escaped from the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, a bunker under the East Wing, through Roosevelt's tunnel into the Treasury Building, a much sturdier structure that morning as it had been in World War II. 
Bud Gallagher and Outpost 2 would clear a path to the front entrance of the Treasury Building and evacuate the President. That, now, was their sole purpose in life. Each member of the team wore a special nuclear, biological, and chemical suit impregnated with lead dust. The breathing apparatus and suit weighed 20 pounds. If they worked together, as they were supposed to, it wouldn't be any particular burden to lift the president to the waiting helicopter. Bud started to run. Every minute on the ground he could count in years off his life. They wouldn't have to worry about the family, Jack Jr. or Caroline. Jacqueline had been dragged, kicking and screaming, very much against her wishes from the White House the day before, evacuated to Pennsylvania. And so he carried just one more suit. The Secret Service, the others. They knew that there was nothing left for them after this. There was no exit from the wreckage of the White House, but the Secret Service had fought their way up from the sub-basement of the Treasury Building, through broken glass and fallen ceilings, to the front entrance. Outpost 1 and 2 converged there. The president was bloody and slouched in the arms of one of his agents. The man said, the ceiling caved in. And we don't know his name either, though historians believe that it was Secret Service agent Clint Hill. Without more than muffled words between the men, the president was covered in the spare radiation suit with no time to dress him properly. The group carried him back across East Executive Avenue to the South Lawn. The Outpost 1 co-pilot had gone missing. Outpost 2's pilot took the seat and the co-pilot jogged south to the ellipse to bring the second helicopter in formation behind. The president had been injured by the falling debris in the first blast, though at least four nuclear weapons fell on Washington. His breathing was labored. Blood filled his lungs. But there was nothing to be done. The 35th president of the United States, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, expired somewhere over rural Pennsylvania at 8.05 a.m. on the 1st of November, 1962. The missiles of October, this time on the Cold War vault. I don't think I need to say that didn't happen, though it could have. And according to war games and computer simulations that have been done endlessly in the last 57 years, by all rights, it should have. What is true? First, yes, it is pronounced Jacqueline, like Queen. Her husband mispronounced it to the press throughout their marriage. It bothered her but only so much as anything bothered her. Bud Gallagher was an Air Force Strategic Air Command officer in command of the 2857th Test Squadron, also known as Outpost Mission, 
That mission was exclusively to train and practice to fly into a ruined Washington, D.C. and rescue the president. The mission was disbanded in 1970 with the acknowledgement that no one in the middle of Washington was going to be saved. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, Jackie had expressed her wish to stay in Washington and not be evacuated. She said if she couldn't be in the bunker, then let her die on the lawn. So she would have had to be dragged, kicking and screaming. Yes, Roosevelt did build a tunnel to the Treasury building in World War II. The Treasury is a much sturdier granite structure. It's still connected to the East Wing today. And Secret Service agent Clint Hill would have been with Kennedy that night. He was the agent who jumped onto the back of the car in Dallas after Kennedy had been shot, and he keeps Jackie from leaping out. Then he covered both of their bodies with his own to protect them. I have no doubt he would have stayed by Kennedy's side if it came to the worst. But this tale of disaster is what historians call a counterfactual. And that's what these episodes are all about. Happy anniversary. It's the Cuban Missile Crisis. After 57 years, what is left to say about the Cuban Missile Crisis that hasn't been said already? Other than historians navel-gazing, of course. In that regard, the crisis of the 13 days in October presents a burbling artesian well of master's thesis and doctoral dissertations. And with that in mind, I still want to offer something to this anniversary month of what is arguably the most dangerous crisis in human history. I suppose that alone warrants an investigation from time to time. The planet in general and the two superpower blocks were spared the worst the crisis had to offer. Things worked out, the world survived, and that was in no way guaranteed. And it was, in fact, not even the most likely solution. War games and computer simulations over the decades have consistently seen the October crisis spiral into anarchy and destruction, with only one chain of events offering salvation. Largely because that is the chain of events we have without counterfactuals change one or two things, the system collapses. Change three, and sometimes we're back on track. I suppose if you want to have some deep thoughts, it's the historical version of the philosophical anthropic principle, which means, very basically, that we see the world the way it is, because if it were any other way, we wouldn't be here to see it. This is the problem with counterfactuals in history, and why you will find professionals in the field avoiding them like a radioactive crater that used to be Havana. Historical counterfactuals often end up party games after historians have lost their inhibitions through alcohol consumption, but never as a serious tool. Almost never. Unlike the anthropic principle, 
We actually are still here to see the world as it might have been without any tinkering on the cosmological scale. Just some bad timing, bad advice, and everything would have been different. As an example, one problem with many versions of the Cuban Missile Crisis is that they often attribute our collective deliverance to the cooler heads in the White House and the Kremlin, or to a thoughtful, historically-minded Kennedy, or a Khrushchev genuinely horrified by the collapse of communism due to blundering, without ever admitting it was his own blundering. Then-Secretary of State Dean Rusk always called it a triumph of American and Soviet diplomacy. Given what we know to have actually happened up to a point, these are valid points to be made when trying to understand leadership and crisis. But where was the leadership in the U.S. intelligence establishment? As far back as the spring and summer of 1962, when reports from Cuban refugees about offensive missiles in Cuba were plentiful. That summer, New York Senator Kenneth Keating charged that there were strategic nuclear missiles in Cuba. But the intelligence establishment failed to follow up because he wouldn't reveal his sources. In the beginning of September, Khrushchev swore he wasn't putting missiles into Cuba when that was exactly what he was doing. It would take nearly six weeks to find the sites, and by then, they were only days away from becoming operational. The Cuban Missile Crisis wasn't a success. It was a massive, nearly catastrophic intelligence failure. You want to know something else that could have saved the world from global thermonuclear conflagration? Other than the dizzying drama of the 13 days in October? More CIA photos in September. But historical analysis very rarely peeks into what might have been done to avoid the whole thing and selects October 16th as the starting point, no matter what came before. I do think that there is a place for counterfactuals, especially in this case. In this anniversary month of what might have been the Third World War, by looking at each point of critical decision or reactions to inexplicable turns in the unfolding timeline, the real magnitude of the events can be made clear. Nearly six decades later, every analysis from scholarly tomes to high school textbooks, if they mention the incident at all in their current withered state, asserts the danger without ever explaining fully that it really would have been the end of the superpowers and the death of hundreds of millions of people. At first, very quickly, and then very painfully slowly. The Cuban Missile Crisis remains a wonderful teaching tool because it is a crisis of sufficient brevity and density that it offers counterfactual proposals that have immediate impacts without adding very many more variables to the problem. The way that the magnitude of 
say World War II, makes second-guessing the impact of any single decision nearly impossible. But the Cuban Missile Crisis still carries all of the gravity of a World War historical problem, and it's an example of the massive impact that individual decisions can have, whether made wisely or in a vacuum of ignorance. And on both sides, the Cuban Missile Crisis has its fair share of wisdom, ignorance, stubbornness, pride, fear, and folly. It's a wonder they didn't set the world on fire. One mystery of history is that something always comes before. The story of World War II is impossible to tell without the story of World War I, without colonialism, without the histories of alliances that go back to Charlemagne, if you wanted to do an extremely and potentially unnecessary deep dive. In the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and without explaining the roots of the Soviet Union or the origins of the Cuban state, or the Spanish-American War, for that matter, one essential foundational piece of history for understanding is the invasion of Hiron Beach, commonly known in the U.S. as the Bay of Pigs. So let's start there. Fidel Castro's socialist movement finally overthrew the Cuban government on December 31st, 1958. And he proceeded to forge strong ties with the Soviet Union, seeing as he was a revolutionary socialist. This was a major thorn in the foot of the U.S. government. But then, Castro started a program of nationalizing U.S. interests on the island, and that angered U.S. corporations. And then something really had to be done. Those nationalizations included fruit and sugar companies, oil companies, and financial institutions. Several companies that are familiar to our ears today still lay claim to assets in Cuba that were nationalized by Castro in 1959. A 2015 Washington Post article named a few. Colgate Palmolive wants its $14 million back. Coca-Cola claims 27.5. Texaco isn't giving up on its 50 million. Exxon still grumbles about 71.6 million. United Fruit Sugar Company, always on its worst behavior in the Americas, is owed $85 million. You would know that company today as Chiquita, the bananas. And leading the list of claims to confiscated property is the long-defunct Cuban Electric Company at $267.5 million. Through a long chain of mergers and acquisitions, shares of the Cuban Electric Company are now owned by Office Depot. Beginning as a plan under Eisenhower, 
The CIA organized, armed, and trained a group of similarly angry Cuban refugees who would return to the island as a counter-revolutionary force and overthrow Castro. They were known as Brigade 2506. This was the military wing of the Cuban Democratic Revolutionary Front. Brigade 2506 landed after some difficulty at the Bay of Pigs on April 17, 1961, and were met with heavy resistance from regular and militia troops. The exiled army numbered about 1,500, with eight B-26 bombers in support. Supporting the Cuban government were 25,000 army, 200,000 militia, and 9,000 police. Fighting didn't quite last three days. The air support the brigade had expected from the United States never materialized. This was a huge embarrassment to Kennedy, who had only been in office for three months. The assumption had been that he would authorize whatever measures were necessary to support the invasion, like Eisenhower had done in Guatemala. But he didn't. The failure haunted him for the rest of his presidency, and life as it would turn out. And some biographers suggest that it tinted all of his decision-making when it came to Cuba and Castro. Far from a disaster for Fidel himself, the invasion actually strengthened his position. In fact, in August, Che Guevara, Castro's fellow revolutionary and poster boy of the counterculture, sent a note to Kennedy that read, Thanks for Playa Heron. Before the invasion, the revolution was weak. Now it's stronger than ever. The tactical, strategic, and psychological aftermath of the Bay of Pigs is what concerns us at this point in the story. Seeing the U.S. willingness to invade, Castro wanted to defend the island and the revolution. The invasion had gone a long way to prove to Castro, Cubans, and people throughout Latin America what they had already believed. The U.S. was an imperialist power, always teetering on the edge of interference, whether political, military, or both. Castro wasn't going to fall for it again. He called on his economic and spiritual ally, the Soviet Union, to become a military ally as well. Not wanting to lose its newfound foothold in the Americas, the Soviet Union agreed. This set the stage for weapons to be shipped to Cuba. Surface-to-air batteries, Ilyushin 28 jet bombers, and of course, nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles. We are now one year and six months from the end of the world as we know it. Won't you come along? Thank you so much for listening to The Vault. This episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. The next two episodes of this special Cuban Missile Crisis series will be coming out a lot more quickly than usual to try to coincide with the most important dates of the 13 days. For show notes or information on the music you've heard on this show, go to thecoldwarvault.com. 
Like and subscribe on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault. And like the show anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. Until next time.